Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Almost daily, amidst the chaos of the past few years, and 2020 in particular, one would like to get into that DeLorean, charge up the flux capacitor, and go forward 50 years and see how all of this will be viewed in the rearview mirror of history in the hope that it might give us some perspective on what we are living through today. In fact, we don't need to do that. All we need to do is look back at the political history of the past 50 years, and we can see exactly how we got here. It's a tired cliche, I'm afraid, but history, while it may not repeat itself, it does rhyme. And as we look back to McCarthyism in the 50s, the anti-war and civil rights movement in the 60s, Nixon's response and pushback in the 70s, and the rise of Reagan in the mid-70s, we see with almost GPS precision the map that got us to our tribalism and anger that so deeply divides us today. We see the meanness, the racism, the quest for political power, particularly on the right. And while Reagan may have hit it in sunny optimism to make it digestible, it would later become the stuff of talk radio and the explosion and exploitation of populist anger. We're going to talk about all of this today with my guest, Rick Perlstein. Rick Perlstein is one of our premier contemporary historians and is the author of the bestsellers The Invisible Bridge, Nixon Land, and Before the Storm. His essays and articles have been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Nation, The Village Voice, and Slate. And it is my pleasure to welcome Rick Perlstein back to this program to talk about his latest work, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. Rick Perlstein, welcome back to the program. Oh, Jeff, it's great to be here. That was a really, really uh, profound introduction. And of course, back to, back to the Future was a great Reagan-era historical document, you know, where I carrying forward the story into the 80s, I might talk about why there was a fantasy about going back to the 50s to make to fix everything. Right. So that's a lot of what Reagan was about. Talk about, for, sort of as a basic setup here, about how rooted conservatism was in 1976, at roughly the period you begin this book. What was the state of conservatism at that point? That's a great question because there's really two ways to answer it. There's kind of how well it was doing kind of on the surface and how well it was doing kind of underneath the surface. Uh, I quote uh, Phyllis Schlafly, one of the great right-wing organizers of the period, saying that politics is like an iceberg, right? Most of it you can't see. And if you were a political commentator in 1976 when Jimmy Carter uh, became president and even more so the next year in 1977 – when essay after essay came out on the subject, you would say that conservatism was, was dead. Just like people said conservatism was dead after Barry Goldwater lost his election in 1964. Uh, but you sense a pattern here, right? Uh, in moments of what appear to be a liberal apotheosis, the reaction is never far behind. And what was actually happening was an extraordinary fluorescence of organizing among people who were discontented by all the social changes of the 1960s, beginning to work their way into mainstream culture. And also uh, another kind of organization was happening at the same time, which was that businessmen, uh, CEOs, uh, corporate lawyers, uh, corporate lobbyists, were beginning to abandon uh, what had been a mark of corporate politics from the previous decades of prosperity, which was kind of an accommodation with the labor movement, an accommodation with the liberal state, uh, and reorienting themselves in terms of 
uh, a vicious backlash against all those things. So uh, the process I tell in my book is that undercurrent working its way into the main current of American politics. And it was also this transition of conservatism from the kind of, oh, I suppose, Burkean conservatism that was at the core of, of Goldwater to the kind of social issue conservatism that became so paramount, started to become so paramount during this period, and which Reagan was so good at putting this glossy patina on. Well, I have to pull back on that question because it's a very interesting way of framing uh, how Goldwater and uh, Reagan differed. Every time a new generation of conservatives kind of comes to the fore, people tend to say, oh, well, the last generation of conservatives were kind of uh, traditional, Burkean, respectable, but these ones are the, the right-wing Jacobins. So when Goldwater came around, uh, you might remember from before the storm, everyone said, well, you know, uh, uh, that, that Robert, uh, Robert Taft, uh, he was the conservative leader of the 40s and 1950s, he was this respectable Burkean conservative. But this guy, Goldwater, he's a, he's a bomb thrower. He's a terrorist. So that's a bigger question, a philosophical question about why we want to think of the previous generation of conservatives as more respectable than the ones we know. I think one way to answer that, one way to wrap our minds around that pattern and that question is that uh, conservatives are time biders. biders. They bide their time for opportunities. Uh, You see a figure like, um, say, Bob Barr now, who looked like a really respectable figure in the Bush administration, but as as soon as he had the chance to kind of advance a more authoritarian agenda under Trump, he seized his movement. And in the same way, I think uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, part of his rise was his success at uh, harboring the same kind of extremist goals that Barry Goldwater had in terms of policy, you know, shrinking the state, you know, uh, uh, more militarism, but packing, packaging them in a much more comforting, uh, genial, optimistic tone. Uh, do you see what I'm getting at? Right. And, and it really begins. I mean, all you have to do with Reagan is go back to the time for choosing speech, supporting Goldwater right. in 64. Right. And so Ronald Reagan was just beginning in the early 1960s to become a figure in conservative political act, a, a, advocacy. And his big debut on the national scene, like you say, was this speech he gave on TV the week before the 1964 election that had a lot of people saying, including in California and the people who drafted him from, for governor the next year, wow, this guy communicates what Goldwater is trying to say better than Goldwater. And that's always been Ronald Reagan's gift to conservatism uh, was his ability to basically be a front man for right-wing ideas in a way that was much more palatable than just about anyone who had come before and pretty much anyone who came afterwards. Talk about how Reagan saw the Nixon years, and I don't mean Watergate, Mm. but the Nixon years politically, and how he incorporated that or not into his worldview. That's a great question. Ronald Reagan was a guy who really did see the world in Hollywood terms, in terms of good guys and bad guys, heroes and villains, black and white. And if he identified someone as a good guy, he would just latch on to that conclusion to the bitter end. And never did you see that more than in his loyalty to Richard Nixon. Uh, He thought that Richard Nixon was basically, had his heart in the right place, that he was conservative. And I think 
in a lot of ways, his, his judgment was vindicated. So when, because when Richard Nixon won his big landslide in 1972 and uh, announced his budget proposal for 1973, what you saw was a very Reagan-like document, a very far-right document. He wasn't able to uh, put it into action because, of course, he was distracted by Watergate. But uh, Reagan loved him. And a lot of the same uh, policies that Richard Nixon was pursuing uh, when they were pursued by Gerald Ford, uh, Reagan was critical of Ger- Gerald Ford because he, he saw Gerald Ford on the other side of that line. Uh, he was one of the establishment, you know, moderate Republicans. So he liked Richard Nixon a lot. And when Richard Nixon began you know, being swallowed up by Watergate, he was a tireless defender. And one of the things I write about in my last book, Invisible Bridge, that really fascinated me was a column by two very prominent political columnists at the time. Evans and Novak, who said that Ronald Reagan's political aides who wanted to make him president were in anguish because Ronald Reagan refused to criticize Richard Nixon even in 1974 when, you know, people were beginning to call for his impeachment. Ronald Reagan would say, oh, the Democrats are worse. Or he would say, we really don't know what's going on with this Watergate thing. He said the Watergate burglars were not criminals at heart. So Richard Nixon was one of the good guys. And Ronald Reagan insisted on um, giving a blanket amnesty for anything that he did for that very reason. And what the pundits didn't get at the time was that this was one of the reasons many Americans found Ronald Reagan so appealing in that they gave him, he gave them a way to think of America's political institutions and America itself as remaining innocent that America had not been stained by Richard Nixon because Richard Nixon was one of the good guys. In fact, it was the people who were seeking to take down Richard Nixon who were the bad guys. So Ronald Reagan, uh, following Watergate, uh, as the really the only prominent Republican who's still willing to defend Richard Nixon, was able to actually thrive uh, in the post-Nixon political environment among Republicans, among conservatives, because he told them they're still good people, their party is still good, and that they have nothing to be ashamed of. You have nothing to be ashamed of was one of Ronald Reagan's most consistent and powerful messages. How much of that was scripted, essentially? How much of it was was Mm. specific choices that Reagan and the people around him made, and how much of it was natural and kind of sui generis to Reagan? Mm. Well, that particular part of what, what... Ronald Reagan was saying was absolutely organic, because as I said, the guys who were scripting his political future were anguished by it, right? Uh, so that was that was the absolute heart and soul of Reaganism. But a lot of what he said, yes, was precisely scripted. And in the books, I show the script. Uh, now, th- just because they're scripted doesn't mean Ronald Reagan had nothing to do with it. In fact, I show him punching up the scripts. He was an excellent editor of what other people wrote for him, right? Um, but a huge part of Ronald Reagan, uh, both running for president and president, uh, a huge part of the kind of penumbra of the people around him was all about kind of keeping the extremist Ronald Reagan under wraps. Um, if you want to go online, you can look up an article I wrote in The New Republic uh, based on material in the book in which I compare the letters that were written for Ronald Reagan to sign by his aides that almost all went to like mainstream pundits and intellectuals, uh, and they all presented Ronald Reagan as a respectable 
intellectual and the center of uh, moderate opinion, and the letters that Ronald Reagan dictated himself to his secretary, to his friends and his critics, in which he would say the most extremist things imaginable. Like, for example, that um, uh, what was going on in the Middle East was the product of biblical prophecy. Uh, or, you know, he would say um, that, um, you know, uh, gays were, um, you know, uh, exploiting children, you know, that sort of thing. So that's a big part of the Reagan dynamic. Um, he had this brilliance at uh, reaching uh, American emotions and making them feel good. But at the same time, he had this very kind of dark underbelly of extremist views and, you know, all through his presidency. Uh, you see example again and again and again of him kind of veering off script often when he was comfortable. For example, his aide, uh, Michael Deaver, um, said you can never let Ronald Reagan be interviewed while he's on his ranch because he just gets too relaxed and lets his guard down. That's kind of the real Reagan show and uh, the Reagan that was being presented for public consumption. Well, in fact, one of the points that you make is that if you go back and listen to all of his old radio shows, the ones that General Electric sponsored, etc., that there was some really extremist stuff there that the Carter people never exploited in the campaign. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Carter, of course, was uh, a guy who had kind of contempt for the cut and thrust of politics. Uh, I describe him as an engineer. You know, he really wanted to just look at the documents, look at the data, come up with a conclusion, and then present it as a fait accompli without getting you know, kind of buy-in from all the stakeholders and the various projects he wanted to do. For example, members of Congress. My favorite example is in, in, his, um, in his diary, he talks about how um, disappointed and frustrated he was that Congress wanted him to appoint 150 new federal judges and that, you know, like half the federal judges will be people he appointed. He said, I don't want this power. Right. No other president, uh, you know, kind of was so contempt, held power in such contempt as Jimmy Carter. And one of the things that people who worked in that campaign told me was whenever they tried to get him to buckle down and prepare for the 1980 campaign, he would he would bristle. He would push away. Uh such that um, you know the, the the there was practically no opposition research. One part of that was their hubris, their arrogance, their belief that Ronald Reagan was so extreme uh, that all they needed to do was expose him to the light of day, and the public would would just grasp what they grasped. Uh, I also produced a memo by one of Ronald Reagan's aides in which he said it's actually the opposite that this idea that Ronald Reagan is, ex- is an extremist can't survive exposure to Ronald Reagan precisely because he came off as a, such a genial person. So, you know, Jimmy Carter, when they did a practice debate and he lost the practice debate, he just, you know, refused to do the practice debates anymore. And they hired as their opposition researcher this, you know, 25-year-old political science graduate who just basically kind of went to the library and looked up old newspapers from when he was governor instead of hiring someone in 1977 to, yes, monitor these radio broadcast that Ronald Reagan was making every day. That was basically how he made a living as a guy who did these little radio homilies, five minute radio homilies every day. They were full of crazy things. You know, the idea that nuclear waste was, uh, could be beneficial for, uh, for the economy, you know, uh, the idea that the national education association was following a script laid down by Hitler. Um, instead they had to deal with the Reagan that people were seeing on TV every day, which was the Reagan with the, with the, the 
rough edges smoothed off by some very sophisticated political packagers. And yet there were a couple of issues where Reagan's position, when you look at it in this larger context, are still somewhat surprising, particularly with respect to race and immigration. Well, um, with immigration, he was 180 degrees turned around from the modern Republican Party. He actually revered immigrants. He loved the idea that uh, immigrants still saw America as a beacon of freedom. You know, even if they really necessarily didn't care about America as a beacon of freedom or not, they just wanted decent jobs, right? But uh, it was very fascinating studying the Texas primary in 1980, which was a showdown between the two, last two men standing, George Bush and Ronald Reagan, who, by the way, hated each other. Uh, and they both compete at the one debate to see who can say the nicest things about undocumented Mexican immigrants. Now, at the same time, uh, almost as soon as that happens, um, his aides kind of put their political finger in the wind and say that, see that this isn't playing with the Republican electorate and also the uh, kind of blue-collar Democrats that are trying to um, recruit the Republican Party, and he never says any of that stuff again. He was very good at kind of taking direction from, from his advisors, but he himself revered the idea of immigrants, and in fact, in his opening speech in 1979 running for the nomination – called for an open border between the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, now, according to on the issue of race, it's a lot more complicated because, of course, the policies he supported were ruinous for African-Americans. I mean, when he became president, he, uh, uh, he cut the budget for public housing uh, from the federal government by 80 percent, right? But at the same time, he also loved speaking before African-American audiences. And he would say, oh, well, they just want the same thing, you know, white people want, which is, you know, safe streets and, you know, good jobs and et cetera, et cetera. And one of his um, most sophisticated strategists, a pollster named Richard Worthlin, uh, encouraged him to speak before black audiences as much as possible. Now, the reason was that for that was not that they believed they could get a lot of black votes. Uh, black voters are very sophisticated and know exactly who is helpful to them and who is harmful. But what it did was reassure white voters, especially kind of white, white moderates in the suburbs, that supporting Ronald Reagan was not supporting bigots or bigotry. You know, even though Ronald Reagan was uh, endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan, who said that uh, the 1980 Republican di uh, platform could have been written by a Klansman. So it's a complicated subject. No, it's, I mean, it's a complicated subject. In fact, um, a lot of African-Americans felt so betrayed by Jimmy Carter that they endorsed Ronald Reagan. One of Ronald Reagan's endorsers was uh, Ralph Abernathy, who was Martin Luther King's right-hand man. And it just you know, shows the astonishing ability Ronald Reagan had to, to charm people, his, his, his rhetorical ability, his political skill. And one of the things about all this is how complicated it is. I mean, even in, even taking into account what Phyllis Schlafly says about, you know, most of the iceberg being below the water, that everything with Reagan seemingly was more complicated. I like to think so. And, uh, you know, as liberals, we should respect that complexity, but also uh, be able to, you know, in the end, you know, make firm moral judgments about, you know, what's good for the world and what's bad for the world. Uh, but if you just, you know, go around thinking that Ronald Reagan, you know, um, was some kind of pre-programmed robot, you know, who was just kind of playing, um, playing some script that was completely written for him by, you know, these kind of shadowy 
uh, corporate backers, you're you're going to miss it. And you know, just to give an example of that, um, originally when he was running for the Republican nomination, corporate America was horrified by him. They thought he was way too extreme. Uh, they thought he was a terrible front man for their agenda. Uh, and it was only with the greatest reluctance that I, you know, kind of uh, document in the book that they managed to make the swing from their favorite candidate, which was a guy named John Connolly, the former governor of Texas, to Ronald Reagan. It took some real massaging on the part of uh, Ed Meese in particular. One of the things that's also so interesting is how much meanness, for lack of a better word, was going mm. on below the surface, you know, being being totally. implemented by people like Richard Vigory, who you talk about, etc., and and how Reagan was able to keep all of that hidden for so long. Right. Yeah. The a huge huge part of um, the rise of the new right, which was of course the absolutely imperative foundation for Ronald Reagan's victory uh, in the late 1970s, was just the most nasty anti-gay hatred uh, to, you know, there's really no way around it that a lot of preachers like Jerry Falwell, who came to power as, as segregationists, you know, uh, you know, Jerry Falwell in speeches in the 1950s and sermons in the 1950s became a, you know, star televangelist by, you know, saying that the civil rights agenda was completely being directed by Moscow and that the Supreme Court was anti-Christian when they passed Roe versus Wade, almost seamlessly transferred that kind of racist energy into homophobic energy. And, uh, of course, <laughs> a lot of that played out, you know, um, in Napa Valley, in the town of Hillsburg, where, Hillsburg, where um, uh, a state senator from Orange County named John Briggs um, got onto the ballot, a prime, an initiative campaign in 1978 to ban gay teachers uh, from teaching uh, in anywhere in the state. And, and people who supported uh, gay rights actually from would be banned, too. And he actually made Fieldsburg kind of the center of his campaign after a, a very sweet, kindly Mr. Rogers-like teacher there, a hero of the gay rights movement, Larry Berner, came out. And the school board, and I guess Hillsborough must have been a very different place then, more of a rural place, and that is tolerant of place, called uh, Burner a moral carcinogenic among the tender treasures of the heavy, Heavenly Father. And uh, the board voted to endorse the Briggs Initiative in order to, quote, protect our children from the rape of their minds before they're raped physically. That's the school board president. So, you know, as nasty as anything we saw in the segregation itself, but this is, you know, all over the country you know, even in states like California, um, Ronald Reagan actually came out against uh, that initiative campaign, right? But at the same time, and this, this really gets to what I was saying about, the, you know, the iceberg, he would write letters to his supporters saying, well, this is a very poorly written initiative. Uh, it gives too much power to children who can kind of uh, weaponize their anger at their teachers by turning them in. But by the way, if any laws become necessary to keep homosexuals from following their agenda, I'll be the first in line to support them. So he's kind of having it both ways on that particular issue. But without that sort of rage about the social changes of the 60s, whether it was feminism or gay rights uh, or, you know, the kind of post-Vietnam retreat from America projecting force abroad, without those sort of energies being weaponized and turned into political crusades, there's no way Ronald Reagan ever would have gotten out of California. As Reagan started to have success, even in, you know, as he made progress in his campaign against Carter, 
To what mm-hmm. extent did he see his role, one, focused on his own success versus taking the Republican Party and the movement along with him? Well, that's a really interesting question. He loved to um, deny his own ambition. Uh, I would say that his, his most strong psychological wellspring was the belief convincing himself that he himself was innocent and had no kind of venal ambitions. But of course he did. You don't become president unless you know you're an extremely determined person. At the same time, I think one of the main reasons he wanted to achieve political power for himself was to turn the Republican Party into a a vessel for conservatism and to move the country uh, to the right. I mean, he was absolutely ideological in that sense. Uh, and of course the two, uh, wellsprings merged together, right? Uh, he, um, saw himself as leading a crusade to purge liberalism from the Republican party. Uh, that was, um, his greatest passion. He, he gave a famous speech in 1975, um, when of course the Republican party was terribly on the ropes after Watergate saying that the way to come back is not to become more like the Democratic Party, which was the conventional wisdom of the time, but to uh, turn the Republican Party into the, the snapping pennant of a fighting faith with no pale pastels, right? The idea, no pale pastels, which is, by the way, kind of homophobic language in itself, but the idea that you know we have to be as um, ideologically clear uh, in proposing an alternative to liberalism, which was responsible for everything dangerous and bad in America and in the world, was, was really at the core of what he was, even if he was willing to make all kinds of compromises to get there. And, and really what you come away with is this sense of Reagan, and I think this gets lost a lot, good, bad, or however people talk about him, is, is Reagan is a really political creature, that, that he was a really Very good politician. So. Yes, that's absolutely true. And you can see all kinds of tactical retreats. I mean, of course, as governor, uh, he ran, as he always would, as a, 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 an advocate of low taxes, Right. But when um, he first of all, he realized both when he was president and both and when he was Sacramento in Sacramento that he was dealing with uh, a Democratic Congress, although uh, he actually uh, his coattails led to the first Republican Senate uh, since the 1950s. Um, And in both cases, he passed tax cuts that led to fiscal ruin and he turned around and endorsed uh, tax hikes. In fact, one of the reasons. Proposition 13, uh, after it passed, uh, was kind of successful in the sense that, you know, there wasn't a backlash against it until much later, was because the state had such a big fiscal surplus because of all the tax hikes that he had initiated when he was governor. And finally, before we wrap up, a quick bit of speculation on your part. What do you think the impact is going to be of the Trump presidency, of what we're going through now on the Reagan legacy, ultimately? I think... It's very easy to uh, exaggerate the differences between Trump and Reagan because, you know, their their tenor is so different. Ronald Reagan is mourning in America. Donald Trump is American carnage. But if you look at something, for example, like Donald Trump, you know, banning federal funds for anti-racist education, the idea that uh, America is not a racist place was absolutely central to Ronald Reagan's appeal to the electorate, right? Right. Uh, the fact that uh, 
both Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan are impassioned about, you know, weakening the ability of government bureaucracy to regulate business. Absolutely parallel. Uh, I think that um, there's a passing of the generations. You remember a day when every uh, Democratic candidate tried to follow the footsteps of John F. Kennedy. Everyone was, you know, the next the next uh, successful candidate was always the most Kennedy-esque one. And for a generation, everyone tried to be the next Ronald Reagan. I think that as a generation passes, that kind of magic is, uh, you know, kind of fades away. Um, so there's a little less passion for Ronald Reagan's legacy, but, you know, it's, it's, it's still there. It's still important. It's still something that Republicans can draw on. Uh, and I think that one of the consequences of all the ruinous things that Donald Trump is visiting upon this nation should be an understanding that a lot of this is the legacy of Reaganism and that it should uh, force a reconsideration of Reagan as a guy who led America to some very dangerous paths. Rick Perlstein, his book is Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. Rick, it is always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Anytime. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers.